Come with me and you'll be in a world of cinematic adventures. Hello! This week, I have Paul from One Good Thing. Absolutely. Paul Salt, we should distinguish, because the other guy is also called Paul in a shocking demonstration of unoriginality on his part. <laughs> on his part, not on yours. <laughs> well, I mean, technically he was born first, but I still feel like well, it's very much... Well, technically you're the unoriginal Paul. <laughs> Damn. You're the copy. He's the original. <laughs> My parents never could tell me why they decided to name me Paul. It was definitely after him. Ugh. If you um, <laughs> want to feel worse, my mother was originally named Paul because I thought she was going to be a boy. Oh, and right. It just added to it. All right. Speaking of boomers, see that segue? Hmm. Awesome. Ah. Ah. <laughs> Let's go to the movie that we're talking about this week, which it's rare for you because usually you talk about crap movies and you have to find one good <laughs> thing in all of the shit. And, and this time you get to talk about a good movie. Absolutely. Yes, that film is The Philadelphia Story. Indeed it is. And it's uh, a film that came off of your suggestions. So um, what what brought The Philadelphia Story to mind? It's one of my favorites. I love uh, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Oh, man. Yeah. And then throw James Stewart in there. I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who, controversial opinion, she probably should have gone off with. I what, should. you mean in the plot or I'm- in real life? Oh, well, <laughs> in real life, I think he was very happily married because Jim's, uh, Jimmy Stewart was some, something of a badass, if I remember correctly. He and his wife doing various things during the war and such, uh, even before America joined. I remember the crazy stories. But no, I, I, I'm definitely Team Mike in this, uh, in the Philadelphia story. What? Okay, we have to get into yeah. this because no way. <laughs> I am 100% Team CK Dexter Haven. <laughs> the Team alcoholic Mike. wife no. pusher. You know what? He was not an alcoholic throughout the movie. He had an alcoholic issue before the movie started. She kicked him out. He sobered up, did not touch anything through the duration of the film. I'll have you know. He is the only member of the main cast who does not get blind drunk during the film. Exactly. See? Morals. Hashtag recovered. But Mike Hashtag gets blind redemption drunk. arc. There we go. Mike gets blind drunk and at no stage goes to push over um, Catherine Hepburn. He just gets more charming. <laughs> okay, no, he more charming. He's literally hitting on a woman about to get married. The, like, in hey, Olaf. How is that charming? He's like, hey, ditch the, the guy who's essentially like a, a wealth parasite. Ditch him and come with me. I'm poor as hell, but it's okay because you have money. <laughs> that's Dexter's, more ins- Dexter's more insidious than that. He's like letting it all play out and like exactly. stirring the shit and Perfect. then swooping in at the last minute in order to pick her up at the end. No, he's creepy. He's a creepy guy. Yeah, no, that's not creepy. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly why I love him. Because he's like he's little finger creepy. back there. What? He's like little finger back there, just letting the things happen. Exactly. See, that's the thing. He's not manipulative mm. in any way. He just lets it all happen. He's he's very <laughs> Mr. Go with the flow. Like, okay, mm. you want me out? I'll leave. But yeah. I'm gonna come back. You're gonna have me back. I know you're gonna have me back. And they do. And then when he <laughs> comes right. back, it's like, you knew that she was in love with him the whole time. That's why she was so mean to him. Yeah, there is that vibe. And it's it's interesting because the whole film is around her kind of self-image. You know, Mm -hmm. she's called Samantha Lord and the whole thing is about how every man that she seems to meet ends up worshipping her or seeing her as some sort of, you know, goddess. Goddess. Therefore, yeah, yeah, goddess indeed. Um, And she doesn't want to be worshipped. Um, but also she has a sort of high horse to climb off of herself is the idea. Dexter, therefore, Mm -hmm. the Cary Grant character, is the only person who kind of sees her for who she is and is able to humble her in her See, own way. See, you're Team CK, Dexter Haven. You just <laughs> don't want to admit it. I know what they're going for. <laughs> I just preferred, I just preferred Jimmy Stewart. Um, because, yeah, it's just, he's the charming one. Even though, I mean, he goes for a kind of middle ground. And there's a lot of class-based stuff going on with him as well. He's a, a journalist. He's very much anti-class system, it exactly. seems, and has a real uh, bone to pick with um, her and her family. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> here's a funny thing. I'm going to sound, I'm sounding like a hypocrite because my Twitter <laughs> is like 100% like anti-capitalist. I would, in <laughs> real life, I would go for the mic. Okay. 
<laughs> and I would be like, oh, screw C.K. Dexter Haven. He's rich just like everybody else. Like, because these, <laughs> these people, let's face it, like Tracy Lord and C.K. Dexter Haven, they are the 1%. That's why, right. like, he gets kicked out and he's like, oh, I guess I'll have to go live in my summer home for a while. Like, he, uh, they're never going to be homeless. Like, he's got houses upon houses yeah yeah they're fine and just like her like for a while when she was like oh you can go stay at my house over here that i never go to i would never come you can just have it it's one of many like i don't even know i barely know about it (laughs) and he like gets disgusted like that's me i'm like oh you people are disgusting (laughs) but as far as like watching the movie as far as personalities are concerned i'm still Mm. ck dexter haven (laughs) because he's not because you know what he's he's smart He's mm. observant. He's witty. Yeah. A bit of a sarcastic ass, which I yeah. love. <laughs> and he's patient. He's just like, okay, I'm gonna let it play out. And he just takes yeah. he takes advantage of things falling into his lap, but he doesn't like manipulate things so that they fall into his lap. Just like that one yeah. guy, George. Fuck George. <laughs> oh, George is the uh, intended husband, right? Yeah, George is an asshole. George yeah. is the one trying to manipulate people, but he's not smart enough to pull it off. <laughs> he's portrayed as like the social climber, right? He's um, the one who's sort of coming into here, and they, they're very keen social to sort leech. of subvert, indeed, and, and they're very keen to try and um, subvert that um, read that, you know, this is about not marrying outside of your class. Because at one stage, um, I think Dexter says, uh, you know, you could be marrying uh, the... Oh, who is it he says... Because the character comes up again. Is it the doorman? Oh, um, what are oh, you yes. are you talking about the scene when um when he said when Dexter tells her you could marry anybody but not him? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, and he, yeah, he says you could be hmm. Yeah, she blames him. She is acting like CK Dexter Haven looks down on George because he is because he's basically middle class. And right. he's like, No, it's not because he's middle class, it's essentially because he's a leech. Him. He's yeah. got no personality except for trying to like leech off of rich people so that he can gain power. He has yeah. nothing to him. Yeah, and says something to the effect of to know him briefly is to know him well, you know. So he's got exactly. like no personality or depth worth plumbing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is really good. And there's that great scene in there where Dexter and um well, Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn go off and get drunk at this party, which Dexter didn't didn't attend, I don't believe. He's back no, because house. he knew that they were just well. For mm. one, he knew the whole thing was a sham because it was supposed right. to be like the, the like in, not really engagement, but like the pre-wedding. It was like part of the wedding ceremony, yeah. I guess. No, yeah. no, actually, it wasn't because it was. Uh, I think it was an annual party, wasn't it? Oh, and they just so, it just so happened to be the day before the wedding. Wasn't that like right. an annual party their parents threw? Maybe their, her dad wasn't <laughs> there, but he was. <laughs> yeah. Like, they thought he wasn't going to come back, but then he came back last minute anyway? Yes. And there was something about that, because they kept calling him by uncle. Yeah, so um, because they thought that he wasn't going to come back, because they thought, like, oh, he's so riddled with shame over this Tina dancer thing. Yes. He wouldn't dare show his face. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, she has who she she thinks are reporters, or, like, you know, she knows that they're, like, spy people. Yeah. So, not spy as in like espionage for those who haven't seen it. <laughs> spy as in like the name of the magazine. publication. Yeah. There's yeah. like a, it's like a, like kind of like People magazine, only like shittier. And it's called Spy <laughs> Magazine. Yeah. And it's Jimmy Stewart and his photographer, um, Liz? Yes. Liz, right. And she knows who they are. So, um, because of them, she doesn't want them to know that her father isn't attending this big gala. So when her uncle shows up, her creepy, incestuous, lecherous uncle. Yeah. Um, oh, who pinches everyone. Yeah, including his own nieces. That's gross. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's a couple of times up, where something uses... like that happens, and it's just yeah. passed off as, you know, just a bit of fun. It's just, yeah, oh, it's, just like, it's oh, uncle. Oh, that's just that uncle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's a sign of the times, I think. <laughs> oh, gosh. So when he walks in the door, she's like, dad, because back then nobody knew who any, what anybody looked like. If you didn't have yeah. a picture on the paper, you would have heard about these people, about all these moguls, but you don't know what they look like. Yeah. Which plays into the ending because she's a uh, shorter groom come the ending, but there's still a wedding yeah. going on. So Jimmy Stewart's just like, well, marry me instead. Nobody knows what that guy looks like. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I would. But really, you were just a toy. I'm going to marry Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> you were a means to an end. And she says, so, I think she tries to let him down lightly by saying, I don't think Liz would like that. And it's like, uh, 
Well, because Liz is in love with him. Yeah. Yeah, so she's very fair. much... There's always somebody... It's like um, Money Penny, if you're familiar with the Bond thing, uh, yeah. films. It's, there's always, and um, in Vertigo, Jimmy Stewart also has a sort of... I don't know. Oh, yeah, and other films too. He's always got a woman who's presented to us, the audience, as being uh, homely by the fact that she wears glasses, but is otherwise, you know, gorgeous, as, yeah. as all people in Hollywood were at the time. She's um, Hollywood ugly. Exactly, yeah. And there's always just a sort of hanger-on <laughs> whose job is to communicate this is a desirable person. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, so I see, that's why I think that he shouldn't be with her because he had Mm. Liz and Liz was there from the beginning. She was. Yeah. She got dibs on, on dim. And George didn't deserve anybody. And CK and Uh, like, it's everybody. Waller seeks its own level. Everybody got who they were supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I just found that, Maybe it's just because I'm so I am so in love with Jimmy Stewart as a performer. I just found that all of his scenes with people just really got, kind of crackled for me. And two in particular, <laughs> the first being when he does show up drunk after that party at um, at Cary Grant's door, and kind mm-hmm. of comes in and has a very drunken interaction with him, including sort of riffing that he that that, um, that Grant has a copy of his book of um, short stories. Is it or is it poems? Yeah. No, short stories. Short stories. He has that on his wall. He's like, did you read it? And he's just like really being antagonistic. Whilst Cary Grant just is doing his too cool for school, you know, letting back and letting this guy just sort of play out. Uh-huh. And that's just a lot of fun. Um, and the other scene being him and Cary Grant and um, Catherine Hepburn sort of uh, having their, their little moment where they get to kiss a couple times. That was the same night. Like at the that pool. was the same night. Yeah, it was just a bit later. Yeah, he See, had a that night. first example let me know that he was nuts. <laughs> because he was like looking at this wall of books. Mm. And mind you, earlier in the movie, he had learned that the library was built by his grandfather, by Dexter's oh, yeah. grandfather. So you right. honestly think that this wealthy elite <laughs> whose grandfather created the library like didn't read like come on he's read more books than you have buddy yeah sure but read his book in particular because again it's that whole class thing that he's like why are you interested in my writing and you know he'd earlier had a bit of a blow to his confidence with um Catherine Hepburn um first of all having not read his book but then going out of her way to find a copy which was interesting yeah and, and then when she found yeah. it she was like oh the poor can write see that's the thing <laughs> that's the thing about this movie I like the fact that like she plays to the whole, oh, I don't look down on people because I'm willing to marry a guy who started middle class and is yeah. working his way up when really she is the classist. And CK Dexter <laughs> Haven is not. And you notice this by the very beginning of the movie, every time they enter, or since the beginning of the movie, every time they interact with a servant or just a regular person, Dexter mm. acknowledges all of the people. He talks to everybody like they're people. Whereas she just walks right past everybody. Yeah. If you're not part of her class, she doesn't even see you. And when That's they first, when she was first introduced to Jimmy Stewart and Liz, she looked down on them. Remember all the repulsive things she said? Like, who would do that for a living? Yeah. Somebody who needs money, like somebody who wasn't born yeah. with money. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's, they definitely don't shy away from just demonstrating the naivety of the family, um, in particular in sort of interactions between Catherine Hepburn and her little sister, uh, mm-hmm. Dina. Mm-hmm. There's a sister, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and just a sort of, yeah, the way they play together. And there's just this general sense that they are a kind of cut off unit in this house. You know, that the three of them, them and their mother, just kind of bounce off of each other and that they are fairly naive when it comes to the reality out there, which um, it was interesting. I was wondering, because this movie was made in 1940, had been in production throughout 1939. I was wondering if there was going to be any kind of reference to the fact that over in Europe we were fighting a war at the time. Um, I don't but think I that really started coming in until like 42. No. Like movies yeah. in 42 started referencing it. And it wasn't until yeah. like 44, 45 when you started getting like the Hitler as part of a plot. Yeah. And over in the UK, we were making films like Mrs. Miniver, which um, did good business, I think, in the States, trying to urge Americans to come and help us because we were <laughs> you know, looking a bit dicey over there at the moment. Be careful um, what you ask for, because <laughs> you just might get a country coming in and being like, 
all right, fine, we'll help, but we're going to take credit for everything. <laughs> hey, paying back that war debt was a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> we were very happy to do it and have enjoyed the last um, 50 years of subjugation. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a yeah. true Brit. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like Tony Blair. It's, um, <laughs> it's been marvelous. Um, no, but yeah, it was. It, it's it's pure sort of fascism at this kind of... Um, Oh, I don't know. I, I recently watched through a bunch of films by David Lean. And around the same time, he was making films that were very much about the British um, middle classes, um, based largely on things by Noel Coward. Uh, you had Blythe Spirit and the like being made at the time. And I think people just, you know, and it still exists today. It occurs, it, it's always shocked me that Downton Abbey, the years in which it was most popular, do kind of correspond to um, the last financial crisis we had. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why were people so into this at the time? Why were people not infuriated by this? But I don't know, there's some little reservoir of goodwill that people reserve for the ruling classes if something is able to humanize them sufficiently. You know what I think it is? And this is Hmm. just me speculating, but I think that it is the mentality of if these people are going to rule my life, Hmm. they must be deserving. Right. Because it's depressing to think that, like, no, they're no better than you, and they mm. bur- they were born into this. It's nothing mm. but luck and chance. Yeah. And the only way to do something is to rise up and stop them. But you're not going to do yeah. that because you're too complacent. Nobody wants mm. to think about that. So they're like, well, let's just <laughs> picture them as better people. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you're right. Because in this, in the Philadelphia story, you know, there's, there's not really a, a sense of them all being deeply unfulfilled and unhappy. They do have little dramas and such, but they don't really, you know, they, they, they don't come across real problems. Well, see, I disagree. Problems. Okay. I think that that was, I think that she is the one who was deeply unfulfilled. Actually, she and her father, mm. which is why even though she had such disdain for him, he was the one who got to her. Because right. both of them, I feel, felt that they lacked purpose. And that's mm. why they were both walking around like, that's why he was parading off with this young woman instead of being right. home with his family. And because he even blamed it on her, like, oh, my daughter didn't like worship me enough. Like, yeah. come on, dude. And with her, <laughs> it was like, well, I don't know why men worship me. I mean, I'm a pious, stuck up a hole, but you know, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so I think that that for most of the people, it's true. Like what you said is true. But for those two characters in particular, because I think that this whole movie is her arc of getting over that. Of like finding something. I mean, her final line in the movie is, you know, um, oh, someone says to her, you look you look like a goddess, I think, or something like that. And and she says, but you know how I feel, you know, like a human being. Exactly. Yeah, so it's all about her sort of grounding herself and feeling like that she actually belongs to, you know, as part of the same race as the people all around her, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's, I think that was her whole character arc. Yeah, I think so. It's, yeah, a a sort of humbling one for her. Yeah. Yeah, she was, it was essentially, this is a 1940s version of Taming of the Shrew. (laughs) The Shrew was tamed. That is true. I mean, there is a way of looking at this as saying that this is about a strong-willed, independent woman who gradually learns that about, that she really needs her man back. There's a way of doing that, but I mean, it's her choice. It, it it still communicates that this is her choice. That you know, she has three guys, as you know, at one stage that she could in theory run off with, and that she ultimately isn't so much learning her place as much as she's learning where she wants to be. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So uh, as far as your, like when you said it could look like, you know, she Mm -hmm. has to be back with him. I think that's a consequence of her coming back around. I don't think that was the aim Mm -hmm. of the story. Okay. Like, so in other words, she was already in the relationship that she was supposed to be in, but she got too high and mighty and she (laughs) had to come back down. (laughs) Yeah. But also he explained he drank because she was so high and mighty. Because she, felt she was so judgmental and nothing he did was ever good enough. So mm. he took to the bottle. Yeah. So because remember, like, he, he has that whole speech where he tells her that, basically. Yeah, yeah. And she was just like, oh, whatever. Like, she just totally yeah. blows him off. 
Yeah, um, because that's, a, that's that um, changing room sort of conversation that they have, yes. isn't it? Where she, di- she goes diving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it's a wonderfully well-written film. There's so much going on with these characters, and the dialogue is just a lot of fun. There's a lot of sort of quippy one-liners back and forth, but also a lot of um, deconstruction going on with these various characters. Yeah, they don't write them like this anymore. Mm, Well, yeah, I mean, certainly not in the mainstream. Um, There are certain indie films that you could argue have sort of similar structures of a bunch of people show up for an event and end up sort of tearing each other apart over the course of of the film. But yeah, it's certainly, you certainly don't see it in sort of mainstream comedies anymore, unfortunately, which are more given to spectacle these days. Have you seen the festival? Uh, Now, is that Feston? The, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I have. Uh, I which is, love that Vinterberg? film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, I loved it because it was exactly yeah. like you just said. It was mm. people show up for a festival and then just shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really great, and I I do love that kind of thing. There was a film. It was one of my favorite films from a couple of years ago from one of my favorite filmmakers working today, a guy called Ben Wheatley. Um, and he made a film called Happy New Year, Colin Bursted, which is tragically un out there. <laughs> you know, it's it was in film festivals. Yeah, it was on the BBC for like a year, and it just it's really frustrating that it's not more present because what it's about is a guy decides to rent a big house uh, to celebrate the New Year with his family. It's a working class family, but the son has done well and so has money. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets this big house together and the dad wants to borrow money from the son and there's a brother who has slept with this other guy's um, wife and it's just all this stuff and it just builds and builds and builds until it's just an absolute nightmare in this house and yeah I love things that are structured that way yeah that, that's very it sounds very much like Festin yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's great it's just you know everyone comes and everyone's trying to have a good time and then suddenly the underlying thing just kind of erupts and tears it all apart see what i love about that and about philadelphia story all of these is Mm. like the dirt that people think they can hide cannot stay hidden forever it's gonna come to light yeah absolutely it's this great idea that given enough time it's like it's you know it's not just no exit at the at the heart of things it's just given enough time people will tear each other apart because hell is other people but at least films can offer us a bit of catharsis afterwards where having aired the horrible things eventually they are resolved indeed or you know everybody gets murdered <laughs> yeah all that <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that was really interesting about this is apparently this is now this was part of a genre called the comedy of remarriage and the reason that this genre existed is because because of the Hayes Code, which was this really harsh production code that meant you couldn't do certain things on camera, mm-hmm. um, you couldn't have a, pre- a protagonist who's you know on the verge of committing adultery or anything like that. So you needed the, the, the characters to remarry in order to get around that particular little piece of, um, you know, you've got characters who get who divorce or they flirt without, you know, anything happening. And it's just... Yeah, it, it's very, it's very interesting to see that sort of contrivance. That as soon as they tried to introduce a law to restrict creativity, everyone just worked around it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Honestly, I think so. A lot of times, you know, artists don't you, you don't want to be restricted. But honestly, mm. some of the best things come about from having to work mm. around crazy ass restrictions. Well, we come back to Cary Grant because one of the things in the Hayes Code was you couldn't kiss anyone for over a certain amount of time. Um, that was seen as very, as it was, there was actually like a time mentioned, which may sound ridiculous, but I think the current board of censorship does similar stuff, but uh, you couldn't kiss for more than a certain amount of time. So for Notorious, in which Cary Grant had to kiss Ingrid Bergman. Oh God, you're going to have Hitchcock fans running in, being angry. 1940. <laughs> Um, Notorious, uh, was that Ingrid Bergman? It was, it was Ingrid Bergman. Um, In order to have them kiss, and they couldn't have them kiss for more than a few moments, so they would kiss and then come apart and then kiss again in this sort of pecking, kind of, you know, coming away, (laughs) going back in. And it's so much more erotic than if they had just kissed. Just stayed kissing. Because after a minute, you're like, okay, moving on. (laughs) It's like, whoa, should we be watching this? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I love the, uh, I love the creativity brought about by you know, constrained yeah. circumstances. It's, it's fun. What's it called? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
So uh. that could explain why movies are shit now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Too much freedom. That's the issue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> plenty of constraint going we can make anything look at the weird ways in which we're gonna have to get over kissing without while social distancing <laughs> you know what i'm sure that that's gonna be the next trend in scripts like it's gonna be everything is gonna be about something something quarantine essentially <laughs> something, waving at each other social distancing yeah, yeah like the romance that could never be from across the from across <laughs> the apartments it's like Romeo and Juliet, except there's two people in different bubbles that um, interact. <laughs> and it ends with them both catching coronavirus and dying. Tragedy <laughs> for this age, no other age. Wouldn't it be awesome if somebody like redid a Shakespearean tragedy, but you made the tragedy element the coronavirus? <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else could fit. Well, I mean, Maybe like you could rewrite Hamlet and make it be like coronavirus that killed his father. Oh God, it's what he dripped into his ear. Right? <laughs> yes. Coronavirus entering through the ear. This could be a whole new, a no. whole new thing for us to worry about. <laughs> Don't give 2020 any ideas, okay? Be aware of these symptoms. Do you have a treacherous uncle <laughs> lying around? <laughs> you have a slightly so, incestuous qu- mother. If so, quarantine yourself for 14 days. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that wouldn't be enough because he was gone for a while with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So it would have to be more like a couple of years. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Try to banish him if possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, uh, methods of mm. dealing with it, putting on a play. <laughs> In order to, to... Oh, damn it. I don't remember any Shakespeare. The play We've, is my the other... thing. Where the catch play the is the thing. The Catch the conscience of the king was the thing I was after. The yeah. problem is I've been host, co-hosting a podcast that reviews every adaptation of Macbeth. So now mm. I don't have any room for any Shakespeare that's not Macbeth. <laughs> having seen it about 17 times. I just loved Hamlet because it was my favorite. Because um, Hamlet yeah. was such a sarcastic ass. And I was like, this is my dude. Like Shakespeare <laughs> is on my level right now. Yeah, there's no other Shakespeare play where the main character spends most of the play pretending to be crazy. You've yeah. got to love that. Telling people to go to hell in the most creative ways. <laughs> like, send an aid. Like, like, where is he? In heaven. Send an aid to go find him. If they find him not there, seek him in the other place yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I love how saucy. That's awesome. I love how, I love how saucy some of these characters are. In Macbeth, there's a bit where... Um, he he says what what's going on wayface because okay wait how white his face is and calls calls him a cream faced loon and then when <laughs> when the guy tries to tell him that things are not going well he says take thy face hence like go over there with your face yeah shakespeare was a cheeky bastard he was <laughs> i love it oh god but yeah just speaking of cheekiness you've just You've got such a quotable film here in the Philadelphia um, story. I'd like to watch it a few more times because this was my first time watching, I should have said. (gasps) Really? Mm. It was, yes. Wow. I have memorized it down there. (laughs) (laughs) It's really great. I really loved it. I've seen a few other George Cucurs. Um, I've seen uh, Gaslight, which I didn't realize was him. I love Gaslight. Oh, yeah. um, We have a psychology term from that movie. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And I, yeah, very fond of that movie. And I've also seen, obviously, A Star is Born and My Fair Lady. But um, yeah, I hadn't seen this one. So I'm glad to be filling in my um, Kukur filmography a bit more. Okay, the way you say his name, the most okay. British thing ever. How would you say his name? Kukur. Kukur. I don't know what is correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, because the way you say it just tickles the ears. <laughs> he's Hungarian, I believe, so I, I don't know what to do. And he's also dead, so I don't think it matters. Yeah, he's dead. Come on, everyone. <laughs> you know who we mean. Were you, were you thinking, oh, are they talking about George Kukor or George Kukor? <laughs> Those are two completely different directors. <laughs> right? <laughs> Give us a break. <laughs> I always oh, heard it pronounced uh, Kukor, but ah. the way you say it is still funny. So I, it's I don't think I've heard it pronounced. Ah. In my defense, the other day I saw a tweet, which is my generation's, I guess, our generation's equivalent of having read something in a book. <laughs> um, I saw a tweet that said, don't make fun of people who um, mispronounce words because it means they learn those words from reading. And I thought that was cute. Yeah. <laughs> but it also just means we're not very bright. <laughs> I mean, that, it's true. Did you see, I see the remake of this. Is a, hmm. mm-hmm. also, I was wondering if you'd seen High Society, the musical remake of this. 
I have not no, because I, I am a snob. <laughs> and I, I'm serious. So there's a remake of another one of my favorite uh, classic movies, uh, Christmas mm-hmm. in Connecticut. I have never oh, seen yeah. it and never will. Fair I have heard they're making of The Matrix 4, and I'm like, nope. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to feel about that one. I like I get to a point we'll, where I'm we'll like, this is perfect. It, I'm, I'm done. We're we're done. I'm done. I'm leaving. <laughs> To be fair, the thing about The Matrix is it's very much a bed that has already been shattered. <laughs> with um, Exactly. So I don't feel so bad about potentially... God, I don't know where this metaphor is going. I don't feel so <laughs> bad about another addition to that. We'll, well, we'll see okay. how it goes. So the way I see it is I look at The Matrix trilogy as hmm. one movie. All okay. Because it's, it's essentially an overarching story told in three parts. Right? Hmm. So I look at it as just like one big movie, but it has just like the movie tells us everything that has a beginning has an ending and it fucking (laughs) has one. Leave it alone. Okay. Yeah. On top of that, the Wachowskis have not done anything really good since then. So let's just go ahead and leave it at that and move (laughs) on. Okay. That is, that is true. You have to judge it by that. It's, it would be amazing if they suddenly whipped out something that wasn't Jupiter ascending. But um, right. Yeah, so, yeah. No. <laughs> I do. I, I must say, I do prefer. Um, I am sorry. I just saw that Lana is Lana is filming a fourth Matrix film, which she wrote with David Mitchell, author. Who's David Mitchell? He's um a really really good author. Um, who wrote things like uh, Cloud Atlas and um, oh fuck, Ghostwritten and such. And he's working on a Matrix sequel. I'm sorry, this is a, a very large amount of news. That I'm going to have to digest much later. Um, <laughs> So, um, very strange. I saw the movie Cloud Atlas. That wasn't a great representation of Cloud Atlas. Didn't make me want to read the book. Did make me think the Wachowskis have shat the bed. (laughs) I was like, and we're done. Thus, we have closed the chapter on the Wachowskis directing. They were, they were (laughs) one-offs. I would... Like, I do recommend the novel um, Cloud Atlas. I'm, it's a shame that the film has spoiled it. Is it anywhere it, I guess, near so as confusing and strange and just odd as the movie? Because no, thank you. Well, I'll tell you this. It's meant to, the book is meant to resemble the structure of a bunch of books that are open on top of each other. So you get the first half of first story, first half of second story, first half of third story, first half of fourth story, up until the middle, you get the whole of the sixth story, and then you get the second half of fifth, fourth, third, second, first. Hey, so why the shit didn't they say that? Yeah. They just threw all of it at us and we're like, you got it? No, I didn't. This is stupid. Yeah. See that? Yeah. Mixing six storylines together in sort of a montage. Because Christopher Nolan has a thing that you can only cut between three pieces of action at any one time. And I think that that's true. Because otherwise it does just get very confusing. Well, you know, it's not even that. It's the fact, because like, even if they had told it, it's not the way that it was structured. It's the fact mm. that there was no cohesion. There was nothing that brought yeah. all the stories together. Like the no. way you just explained it, you you explain what is happening. We're reading the beginning chapters of open books and then you go yeah. back and you finish it. Okay, cool. Now I yeah. can keep all the chapters. You can have six and I can keep it all together and know what's going yep. on. But if you never give that explanation and you just throw a quarter <laughs> of a story at me at a time and then it ends like, okay, yeah. fuck this. Oh god! It reminds me of those dreadful day movies like Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, New Year's Day, or New Year's Eve, um, yeah. where they would have like, like literally eight stories going on, and one of them would be wrapping up, and then we have to go find out how the other six are doing <laughs> before we can come back to this one, which is still wrapping up. And tonally and pacing wise, is just a madhouse. That I believe was just because they had to get all the. Un- it was such an ensemble cast, and like everybody had to get their twenty minutes. <laughs> Yeah, they booked the cast first. I, I believe. Right. I don't mean to say that sassily. I truly believe that is how they did that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you can't have like nobody can have more screen time than anybody else, kind of thing. Oh, so God. it's like it doesn't matter if their story arc is wrapped up. They've got to deliver yeah. flowers or some shit because they need to be on the screen. <laughs> oh, you heard, you heard that about um, the towering inferno that there was such a rivalry going on between um, who is it now? It's Paul Newman and uh, it's not Robert yeah. Redford. He's Steve he's McQueen. Steve McQueen, that's it. That there was such a rivalry that, for example, in the, po- in the opening credits, um, both at the same time, and one of them got to be higher and one of them got to be on the left. That's how they got managed to justify, you know, that neither <laughs> was getting, the up, getting one up on the other. And it's ridiculous. And they had to have the exact same number of lines. It is ridiculous. They should have just given yeah. it to Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> we could 
do with one? It's it fine. didn't go where you thought I was going to go with that, did I? <laughs> no, that was a bit of a surprise. But, um, <laughs> it's the first time I've anyone, heard anyone not pick Steve McQueen. But I was happy. I was happy for that curveball. But <laughs> coming back to Philadelphia's story, I mean, I wouldn't be disappointed to be any of these actors. They all had so much to do. You know, it's a it's a kind of all-star billing, although it wasn't at the time because Catherine um, Hepburn was a bit of a toxic name at the time. Uh, Box Office Poison, I think they called her. I know, um, but I feel like all around. of her best films, that was the case mm. for. Right. Like everything, and again, it's part of that like triumph through, you know, triumph by fire. Like it was like she was the most constrained. Yeah. She did the best. Yeah, maybe that was it. Because when did, because my favorite Hepburn is the African Queen. And I don't know um, where that came came along in terms of her overall career. That was like the 60s. That was after they'd gotten over it. Yeah, right. Um, This is my favorite Hepburn. This Mm. and Adam's Rib and um, uh, the one with the wife. Uh, What was it? No, not my favorite. What's the name of that movie? I can't remember it. Anyway, um, (laughs) it's another another Spencer Tracy movie that she did. Where like they were married and it was I can't remember it anyway. But Adam's rib, this one, and bring, hmm. I think bringing a baby is fun. I and it was like peak goofy Hepburn and Carrie. Right. Bring a baby is the one where like they were um, they had the 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 bone. Have you seen it? Hmm. Where like, no, the, I haven't. They had the dog that grabbed the dinosaur bone, and they were like <laughs> um, they were trying to build this giant dinosaur for a museum, hmm. and um, a. a they had a they like had a bunch of animals and stuff. Oh no 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 wait no that is bring up baby yeah. Um and then they also mm. had I think it was a leopard I don't know some kind of cat it was some kind of big like <laughs> like wild cat like kill you kind of cat. Right yeah <laughs> and that was baby that that's the baby and bringing. Oh baby. right oh yes I have heard this premise yeah yeah it oh, was man. like yeah. it was goofy like they even do like tricks and stuff like they do like gymnastics tricks and stuff it was fun yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, I like well, bringing up baby, but this one is peak. For me, it's peak Hepburn, right? But it's also like great because you get that trilogy. Yeah, with you know with Carrie and Stewart as well. Yeah, and I think I think this is the youngest I've seen Cary Grant. I don't think I've seen anything familiar in this because I'm mainly familiar with his Hitchcock films. Oh, um, then yes. Oh, yeah. Yes, I've seen I younger. Think, oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, bringing up Baby in 38. But yeah, I haven't seen... Um, oh, I saw His Girl Friday, which is 1940. So I've seen something the same year. But um, yeah, not earlier. Yeah, so we're, it's funny. We're, we're in the opposite, like the same stars, but opposite decades. I focus more on like <laughs> the 30s, 40s, and you focus yeah. on like 50s, 60s. Because you bring I up like so. North by Northwest, African Queen. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, Psh, I stopped paying attention by then. I'm back in like <laughs> The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't either of them. That was actually uh, Ginger Rogers, but whatever. Mm. He was in, uh, well, he was in Notorious in 46. So he did a bit of 40 stuff um, <laughs> that I had seen before. But yeah, it, you're right. It's, um, I don't know, a 30 sort of golden era Hollywood is maybe something I need to spend more time. Yeah, you were waiting um, on the colorized version. I'm black <laughs> and white. I adore black and white photography. And there was some, yeah, really good stuff in here. The way they capture the sort of man, this giant manner that they live in which yes. just feels really open, you know? Everything opens out into the sort of um, communal area. And it's sometimes staged a bit like a play. Like, I, I would notice how many times we would see one location used for multiple different scenes with different characters moving in and out and, you know, the action that's, sort of transitioning whilst the location stays the same. Yeah, that's pretty much how all movies, not all, but that's, that's, like the, that's the structure of a lot of movies from that right. era because mm. they weren't, big on like the location the setting itself wasn't as big as the characters actions and the dialogue so Mm. it it was more like a play because it's Mm. all about character interaction and it's less about physically where they are right like the physicality of where they are has to add to the scene they're not like it's not a michael bay film they're not just going to go outside so they can blow some shit up if blowing something (laughs) up doesn't have anything directly to do with their character it's not going to happen Fair enough. I will say there are more subtle ways than Michael Bay of utilizing environment <laughs> and playing it into character. That's but, true, uh, but he, he's the first thing. I just watched The Rock again yesterday, so it's the first thing on my mind. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, it, it's... Oh, where were we before that? I can't remember. But yeah, it, it's a really beautifully shot film. There's a lot of um, yeah. images that are going to stick with me. 
But um, yeah. um, have you seen? Oh, I always see. Here's the thing: I have watched a ton of movies, and I get <laughs> the names of them confused or just erased. <laughs> but I'm like that movie with the people, and then that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a movie that I'm thinking of. Oh, what's it called? Uh, it's got Cary Grant in it too, and it also okay. has Shirley Temple. I'm just gonna look it up. Anywho, I will explain <laughs> why because I'm never gonna remember the name. Um. The reason why I say that is because um, because back then there it was before the whole um, you know women are supposed to you know be at home and you know be the the good little housewife. So before that time, because that was like after the uh, you know after the wars. So before Mm. that, women were allowed to be judges, right, and to be doctors, and not Mm. just you know, not just a nurse or a secretary. They were yeah. allowed to like own things, you know? And mm. so I love that. Um, what's the name of yeah. it? I'm almost well, I don't there. Know this, I don't know if this plays into the idea of pre-code because pre-code refers yes. to a brief period after the invention of sound in like the late 20s and the adoption of the Hayes Code in 1934 where Hollywood was just buck wild. And that's where, you know, as a horror fan, it's where all of the universal horror movies came from. Um, and you could have things like James Whale, uh, a sort of openly gay kind of director making movies in Hollywood and everything was fine. Um, well, everything probably wasn't fine. There was probably still shit, but he did it. He fucking did it. And just loads of other stuff and great sort of roles for everyone involved. And then the Hayes Code came in and eventually it led to these glorious films, but it was kind of a shame that this little dynasty of, um, of glorious filth didn't manage to last after, um, until... <laughs> until afterwards and you know it's the relaxing of the code in the 50s where you start to see cinema take on a kind of cult feel again in the sort of 50s and 60s okay so mm. i found it and i am okay. ashamed of myself because i had already said the name oh god it's the bachelor and the bobby Soxer. oh okay <laughs> that's the name i when i said that that wasn't the movie i was thinking of i again i was wrong because the movie i was thinking of at the time <laughs> was actually, um, it was a Ginger Rogers film. But this actually, this one is does have Cary Grant and Myrna Loy right. and Shirley Temple. Okay. And Myrna Loy is a judge. Mm. And oh, Shirley right. Temple is a teenager who falls in love with adult Cary Grant. Ah. Huh, this is actually quite a bit after this period, the period I was describing. That. It's in 1947. Yeah. Mm. And even That's though bad. the poster is in color, the movie's still in black and white. Right. Oh, interesting. And I do like um, I do like Grant. There was a thing at the BFI recently because he's English-born. His real name is mm-hmm. Archibald Leach, which yeah. is always quite amusing to me. And um, English-born went to America and sort of became this iconic American actor, kind of. And I don't think he ever... I don't know if he ever used his British accent or even had much of one um, in real life. But yeah, he's this... Well, that's because you're British. But as yeah. a non-British... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. It's obvious. Yes. <laughs> okay. As a non-British, you can hear it and he's like, oh, he's originally from England, isn't he? <laughs> I think it's, it's the separation, first of all, that, yeah, I'm not American, so I wouldn't necessarily recognize that something was wrong, but also the kind of time thing. You know, it's been so long and people spoke differently, sort of, um, especially on film in, that, in uh, the 1940s and such and 50s. So, yeah, I didn't necessarily spot that. Also, I've just got tin ear for accents, generally. <laughs> <laughs> True, but he... So the cool thing about Cary Grant is he was so smooth mm. and, like, he had a certain cadence. And yeah. really only people... Like, there, there are few people... Like, Christopher Walken has his own cadence. But <laughs> very few yeah. people have timing. their own... Yeah. And Cary Grant is one of them, and he also had such smooth speech... And it's because it was laced with a British accent. So there was mm. like this this like air of superiority, but then he was also very like laid back and down to earth yeah. at the same time. So it's like all of that kind of came through in the way he said hello. Yeah. He's <laughs> always got a wry smile that just says, you know, I'm here, but only because it amuses me to be here. Also, didn't he have a British accent in charade? Oh, I haven't seen charade. Oh, well, see, there you go. Mm, see, I have this effect possible. on people. Like, you're going to watch <laughs> 10 more movies after talking. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a period I'm interested in catching up more in. It's just, sometimes I feel like I'm suffering from not specializing enough in my area of cinema. 
Like recent things that I've felt the need to watch through include David Lean, but also the films of Jacques Tati. Um, I've got a Francois Truffaut box set that I need to crack into and a Rainer Werner Fassbinder one and the films of um, Carl Feodor Dreyer, which also needs to be watched. So I feel like I know a little bit about everything, but not a lot about any one thing. (laughs) Jack Moultrie's master of none. Exactly. I was just about to say, I consider myself the jack of all trades. Hey, you know what? But you know, there's the original ending to that is, or the original saying is, Mm. it's better to be a jack of all trades than to be Uh, a master of only one. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it benefits to, because the, you know, the feast of cinema is so broad. Yes. But, um, but every source might do get jealous of certain people. Like, um, I've got a guy over here called Christopher Frayling, and he has built a career. He's quite old now, but his career was that he's the guy who knew about Sergio Leone and Spaghetti Westerns. And he just fucking knew every single thing there was to know about. And he's written books and he's like built a career on loving and knowing one thing completely. And I'm a little envious of that, but also I don't think I could because he only made <laughs> six movies, Sergio Leone. You know, I don't think I could obsess that much over any one person. I mean, hell, I'm obsessed like that over the MCU. But at the end of the day, that's not... Like, I, I couldn't do that in it entirely. After watching yeah. Iron Man and Captain America for so long, I yeah. need to watch Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn <laughs> cut it up. Like it's, oh, God. Yeah, now, is like, that a game? Can we cast the Avengers using Hollywood <laughs> Golden Era people? Can you find a place for Cary um, Grant in the MCU? Let's not do that, because I feel like that would just ruin my brain. <laughs> because it's all segmented. It's like, this is the play cinema. This is the real cinema. This is the, you know, there are categories, right? So let's let's not mix them so that they don't, it's like in Die Hard with a Vengeance, if you mix the two chemicals, it becomes a bomb. <laughs> let's not blow up my brain, okay? Fair enough. <laughs> we will leave that, that, that wall very much intact. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I I like everything. I like a little yeah. bit of everything. I don't get too oh, yeah. far into one thing. Sometimes I do a deep dive, like you know, MCU yeah. Star Wars. I'll do a deep yeah. dive, but then I'll also come back out because you know I got to go back and watch my '90s action flicks. You know, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> or I have to watch my 1940s, like Myrna Loy or Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's the thing. Is this just this? You'll never get. You know, in our lifetime, we'll never watch all the films that we should have seen. You know, the films that we'd have loved. And out there somewhere is probably a film that if we watched it tomorrow would become our new favorite one. It's just, you know, you can't over-specialize or think of it in that way. You've just got to enjoy cinema for what it is, which is just this endless sort of stream of delights that that you can just dip into at any stage and enjoy. Indeed. And for me, that's why I'm so picky when it comes to films nowadays, because I have seen a vast spectrum of films. So right. I'm not going to automatically see a film just because it came out. I did that in the nineties. Like I, I feel like you do that in your twenties, you know? Okay. I did that in my twenties. I'm done. I can now, I, I can go back to only watching what I want to now. It's, it's nice to have a feeling of things being curated. Like one of my big upsets of this year is that the quarantine is going to mean I don't get to go to the London film festival this year or any film festival. In fact, and I do love the idea, because when you get press accreditation for a film festival, you get to just go sit in a room and you don't even know the names of the films that were on because you didn't look at the schedule closely enough <laughs> and stuff just starts playing. But you, the only thing you know about it is that somebody decided this was good festival. And yeah, I, I just, I'm going to miss that. I'm going to miss that sort of combination of the unknown, but also the assurance that this is, that yeah, somebody selected all of this stuff. <laughs> See, and that's the thing, I guess... I guess I've kind of moved past that because I was very much like that in my 20s where I was like, it doesn't matter what the content, it's a movie, put it in front of my eyes. (laughs) Whereas now I'm like, it 100% matters the content (laughs) because there are way too many damn movies. I am one person. I'm not going to waste my time on something that's bullshit. Yeah. So I've I've been in both places and sometimes I do feel a little guilty. Like, am I not as open as I should be? Should I be willing to watch more? (laughs) And then I'm like, no, because I'm 42 now and I'm too old for this shit. Like, (laughs) like, Hey, I mean, you know, one of the hardest things to learn as we, you know, get older is just to get a good sense of what it is we like. So to actually have that, I think, and to hold on to it. Exactly. Far too many. Yeah. Far too many people get old and just decide they don't like anything. (laughs) 
Well, see, and that's the thing. Like, I still like a lot of things, but yeah, there, yeah. especially with Hollywood movies, there are so many things that it's like I've seen this before. I'm not wasting my time or money on this. Yeah, God. I mean, yeah, the one of the last films I saw before um, lockdown started was um, uh, the third Bad Boys film. And I, <laughs> me too. I, 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 <laughs> Oh man, I just, I knew what it was going to be. I knew exactly what my problems with it were going to be and what the things that I might like about it were going to be. And I didn't get all that much out of it. And you just figure, why did you then see it? Why didn't you go elsewhere and see something else? And it's just like, eh, I just felt like something familiar that day. Even if it was bad, it was going to be bad in a way that is familiar. And sometimes that's kind of what you want. Yeah. Well, okay. So just because something is a sequel or a remake doesn't automatically mean I have nothing for it. Like if Mm. you do a good take on it, perfect example, another movie that came out this year, Invisible Man. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was an excellent take on a movie. This was like the third or fourth version of this movie, but it was the best. Uh Yeah. It was really good. It was very suspenseful. It a hundred percent put you in her shoes. Yeah. And yeah, there were parts that were like, okay, that doesn't make sense. Like, the knife coming up next to her on her right, but slashing to the left <laughs> and her not. Oh, and it looked like it was her. It was like, come on. Anybody saw everybody. If anybody looked, they would see the knife is floating. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it lingered far too long. You would think he would have put the knife in her hand and had her hand move it. But instead, yeah. like you just see this floating. knife. <laughs> so like there are a couple of things here and there that like, we're like, okay, that, probably didn't make the most sense but it was still like it was very intense it put you in that moment Mm. so and for me the whole purpose of a movie is to entertain so i can do the popcorn thrillers like independence day and stuff like that and transformers it doesn't have to be highbrow cinema i will still take Mm. highbrow cinema i like all of it yeah it has to entertain and i love movies that like they give you something you know like they educate or they like make you think I love that too, but not all movies have to do that. But what you have to do is you have to stick the landing. If you're a comedy and you're not funny, you failed. That's exactly it. Yeah. And the thing about the Transformers movies is that I just don't find them entertaining in a visceral way. I'm perfectly happy to enjoy movies um, that only offer action without really all that much else. You mentioned 90s action movies, which is always where my brain goes back to is movies like Hard Target or, you know, anything that fucking John Woo put his hands on. It's just <laughs> yeah, entirely happy to just have glorious gunfights and um, explosions and such. But I have to have that visceral connection and actually enjoy it. And there's always something in between me and Michael Bay, the way he shoots and films is just there's something there even a movie like the rock which is a movie i quite enjoy for how campy aspects of it are like nick cage and sean connery being just gloriously wonderful together yes. but but the way like the the shootout in the um the shower room which is the only shootout i can actually remember where the whole team get killed mm-hmm. i just remember that being so hard to pass and sort of understand and really yeah, and certainly to get excited about. It's just, there's something about Michael Bay's action style. I, I was the opposite, because for me, yeah. the dialogue and the... Mm. You know what? It was Ed Harris. It was Ed Harris oh, and Michael yeah, Bean great. that sold that scene for me. Because <laughs> Michael Bean is doing what he has to, and Ed Harris is doing... You can see the conflict in him yeah. when he was like, I don't want to kill my own soldiers. Like, I'm trying to prove a point. Don't make me do this. Yeah, and yeah. that that conflict drew me in, and when he was like the whole throughout the entire shootout, he was screaming "Cease fire! Cease fire!" Nobody was listening, and it was yeah, like yeah, foreshadowing yeah. for later when they all turned on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. I can see how that's, that's good dramatic stuff there. It's just something really. Uh, I just can't get into a Michael Bay film, even the early <laughs> stuff. And I've had this with Paul too, who still says that he enjoys things like. Um, you know, Armageddon and such, but... Oh, no, see, mm-mm, no. Wait, that's <laughs> no. a bridge too far. We can't go. Yeah, maybe. Armageddon just, uh... is the stupidest thing. I st- oh, gosh. <laughs> the only decent part of that movie was Steve Buscemi. Oh, yeah, him going insane is always fun. I quite like Peter Stomhair as well, being this crazy Russian guy. That's and, um, always quite amusing. And Billy Bob Thornton. And it's just oh, because Jesus, like that was crazy. like one of the few times he was the straight guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so- because he's always like, he's usually the Steve Buscemi character. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh god. So yeah, but uh, in re- uh, reaction to a thing you said earlier, when you were talking about how sequels, you know, aren't necessarily automatically bad, that's certainly true. But I knew exactly what B- Bad Boys Three was going to be. Really, yeah. there was no chance that this was going to be the one that broke the mold and really told <laughs> a different story, an introspective and different story, or even just yeah, was different in a more exciting way. It just felt like someone trying to be Michael Bay, which is not something I'd like them to do. So but the thing it had going for it was. It was an action flick that came out at the beginning of the year. And now the thing that's going for it is it's one of the only films to come out this year. Well, yeah, exactly. My list of the top films of 2020 is so far a film of a list of six. So it's going to be in your top 20 because it's the only it's one of the only things that's a 20. God, I'm going to have to watch some streaming stuff, which I don't really want to do. You know, I'm still not counting streaming as having come out. If I don't get a chance to sit in the theater and enjoy it. I feel I the same count, way. Consider that as counting out, as coming out. You know. Yeah, and they've just they've just announced now that uh, Mulan is going straight to Disney Plus. Um, yeah, for like one hundred and seventy dollars. This is so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <It's> so stupid. <laughs> so that's going there, and people are like, "Will Black Widow do the same?" And I just think, I hope not. No. No, don't let it. Do a Nolan. Nolan knows. <laughs> also, I am really concerned about movie theaters surviving. Uh, so just hold off just wait yeah and open them you know let them come out when the theaters open i also realized that the u.s we didn't do our homework we didn't eat our peas and Mm. so we're on punishment so if other countries (laughs) would like to have movies and if you know other countries are able to open theaters go for it we deserve the spoilers (laughs) we've done it to you guys Oh, okay. <laughs> that is really big of you because when I heard that Tenet might open in certain European countries, I was furious. <laughs> really? I was like, no, they can't have it first. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, wow. UK, UK <laughs> is slightly behind um, America in terms of irresponsibility. Like, g- genuinely, we've been just as crap. And we're looking at a second wave any day now. So, yeah, it's probably going to be the same. For the moment, cinemas are open, and I'm actually going to try and go to one on Friday. I can't even remember what it is i'm seeing now yeah but, ours are not open that's why new, new movies don't come out yeah. because we're the arbiter of who gets what that's why i'm like okay <laughs> look we didn't do well let everybody else have it like don't because here's the because like a lot of the movie theaters that i go to are international ones like um like regal and mm. um, amc oh yeah and i because i have passes to both of those so i'm like look if Germany and England need to get, like, if they can open their AMCs, let them do it. <laughs> okay. Because <Yeah. laughs> I just want the ability, because I'm worried that, like, if they can't open anywhere still, right, then they're going to go bankrupt. And then we won't yeah. have it at all. Like, there won't be anything to come back to. Yeah. So, yeah. y'all can have I'm- it. I'm fine with that. As long as, at some point, I can sit in a theater and watch a movie again. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um... Yeah, you hope that that revenue is being collected. There have been a number of cinemas over here that are doing their own thing. Like I have a subscription to a whole bunch of cinemas and they've they sent out letters saying, okay, if you want, we can hold your subscriptions, you know, and your membership fees until the new year. But we'd really appreciate it if you just sort of kept paying anyway, even though you're not getting any movies. And I, I continued doing that with things like the British Film Institute and um, Prince Charles Cinema in London, which is this big cult cinema that shows, you know, you know, does does your Arnie all-nighters and stuff like that, which is what's kind of ridiculous. It's called the Prince Charles. But um, it's world-renowned as a sort of loving London home for trash. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, my, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm supporting cinemas in my own little way. My uh, way of supporting is mm. um, on Mondays, AMC has um, on-demand movies for $3. So oh, okay. I just buy like $15 worth of movies every Monday. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, because um, I'm like, look, because well, because I used to pay twenty four dollars a month to be able to watch three movies a week, right? And they're not open, and I'm like, you bitches better come back. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh man, it's so it's frightening. It's a frightening time, and yes. it'll be very curious to see how the movie industry adapts and changes as we come out of it. But yeah, hopefully, people and I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any danger of people losing track of how wonderful the cinema experience is maybe it'll change maybe there'll be a little down period whilst the you know shuffle has to happen but everybody was always terrified even back in the 50s people were terrified everyone has televisions now no one's going to come to the movies and whilst figures have dipped 
it's not going to disappear. People want that experience. They've yeah, and for it to experience things communally and in a big, um, big screen in an environment where you are discouraged from bringing with you the things that take you out of a movie like your phone. Exactly. See, okay. Yeah. I am going to acknowledge up front that I am not the person who knows anything about the average moviegoer because I cannot remember how many movie marathons I've done in a theater. Right. Um, I the latest one was the Marvel one last year, which was three oh, days. Nice. Oh wow! I'm I'm a little nuts, um, so I acknowledge I'm not the average person. Okay, like I've literally lived in a cinema for a, a half a week. All right. Yeah. But that being said, I'm not the only one. That theater was not empty. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So there are plenty of people just like me. I actually got to the point before um, the shutdown where I would yeah. not go on weekends because the general public went and they would use their phones and I'd want to shoot people. So, yeah. I mean, I didn't literally shoot people, but I like you, I, when it, before, when cell phones first came out, if somebody used it, I would just go tell the manager and they'd kick them out. But now yeah. it's like, they were, like it got to the point where it was so many, it was like, I'm the one that's odd for not using my phone. <laughs> so then I was just like, all right, screw it. I'm only going like Monday through Thursday because mm. Thursday night, those are my people. The right. premiere movie crowd. Uh, okay, yeah. The ones, the nuts who are going to come out at midnight to watch the movie first. <laughs> That's, those oh, are my peeps. God. I miss that whole thing. <laughs> I miss that whole thing. Me too. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I was yeah, I, Extraction on Netflix, and the whole time uh, I was like, I wish I was in a theater. <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way about The Old Guard. I, w- I watched just a few weeks weeks ago it's just not the same yeah. watching these movies that are big you know the big movies that were made for the big screen and just watching them you know and i have a pretty decent setup here at home i have a nice screen it's just not the same it's not the same it's, it's not, not the same and i agree that most i mean yeah I, I think i read something that the average cinema goer goes to the cinema three times a year and that was just really freaked me out <laughs> i was like no way <laughs> Dude, in the 90s, I watched a movie three times a day. And that is not an exaggeration. I had a blockbuster (laughs) movie pass. Yeah. It was exactly six minutes from my house. Had it memorized. (laughs) Had the route, like the fastest route to get there. I would watch a movie. So like the night before, what would inevitably happen is I start out with, I have a movie from the night before, right? Yeah. So as soon as I get a chance, I would go to blockbuster the first time I go for the day, I'm there for yeah. the longest. And what I'm doing right. is I'm scouting out the movies I'm going to rent later. Oh, man. <laughs> so I'll decide, like, I'll walk through the whole store and right. be like, okay, this one, this one, this one, and if I have time, that one. And right. then I'll get the first one. And I was expert at flipping it around. I suck at math, but I can tell you two things. How long a movie is based on the number of minutes, <laughs> and I can do money excellent <laughs> i can do that in my head instantly because i, I would be like, have to think about the longer films with with um with minutes <laughs> <laughs> i'd be like 134 minutes okay that's two hours and 14 <laughs> like it was just like instant because yeah. like i just got yeah. trained from that time <laughs> and i would rent a movie like you with a movie pass you just swap them out they just open it and make sure it's in there and then you know then like go into your account rent it to you and then hand it to you on the side yeah and I, half of my Facebook friends are people who worked at Blockbuster in the 90s because I became friends. Like, this, this was my life, you know? And, That's awesome. Um, I love that. I, and then this is where I got into, like, foreign films because once you've seen all the mainstream, mm. you're like, well, what else is there? So then you go, you, it's like the supermarket. Like, you start on the outside, but then you start coming inside and you're like, well, what's this aisle? Well, speaking of which, quick test. I recently watched a film called Saturn Tango by Bellatar, really good film, 439 minutes long. Can you run that one? Holy shit. Yeah. 439 <laughs> minutes? Isn't that like almost five hours? Um, hold on, I didn't do the math myself. <laughs> I was so well, confident. every 120 is an hour. Yeah. I well, know, every 120 is two hours, right? Oh, sorry, every 120 is two hours, yeah. So divided by 60, yeah, seven and a half. Seven and a half, jeez. Yeah, Wait, how many minutes movie. did you say it was? Uh, 439, I think. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. And did you do it insane. in one sitting? Um, no, I did two. <laughs> I broke it over a couple of days. I know. <laughs> I didn't go see it at a cinema. It's the thing. There are, there were actually screenings where they would do a couple of, um, intervals 
for you but watching it on a dvd it was like i'm gonna finish this tomorrow i remember when titanic came out it was on two different vhs cassettes oh my god that's (laughs) amazing too long in the time it's funny i I remember having that on vhs i can't remember if it was a double vhs (laughs) mine was i got it as soon as it came out Uh, but then again like i always get the special editions but um right it was two it was two it was two in one like box kind of like one of Arabia or something (laughs) i love that i do miss big chunky vhs boxes but um i used to do the same as you i used to i had a cineworld pass when um which i got in my early 20s and yeah i used to go to the cinema and the cineworld pass means you spend a certain amount of month and you get to see as many movies as you like Mm -hmm. and i would just go i would go see usually around three movie uh two movies a day actually but sometimes there would be a third and the closest I get to that now is the slightly more hectic um, film festival period where for about three weeks of my life, I'm seeing somewhere around five movies a day um, <laughs> in order to review them, which is not ideal. All right. So drop the links, Paul, yeah, but okay. not the other Paul. <laughs> Certainly. So to find out more about the other podcast, uh, One Good Thing, where we try to find things that we like in bad movies, then you can go to OGT Pod on almost anything that you can search for that in uh, Twitter, Facebook, all the rest of it. Uh, or you could type One Good Thing, but there's this gardening chick who's stolen all of our SEO. So. <laughs> You have to look down a bit. Um, and then what else have you got? Well, you've got Screen Mayhem where I do all of my other stuff. And that's uh, where I'm a film critic. Reviews go up almost every week. And I appear on most of their podcasts as well. So yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. <sighs> Everybody go check him out on all the things. Subscribe to One Good Thing. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, do us a favor. If you're listening through Apple, give us a five-star rating or any other app. Drop us a like. And don't forget to subscribe so that you can hear new episodes when they come out. Thanks. In case I don't see ya. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>